In case any of you are confused, I am not Dr. Michael McKelvey. I'm sure of it. Dr. McKelvey could not be with us today, uh, so I'm pinch hitting for him. And I'm not going to bring us back to the Ten Commandments today for two reasons. Uh, wasn't enough time for me to finish preparation for our examination of the Fifth Commandment, which is next in our study of the Ten Commandments. Um, that's coming up in two weeks, and that's the other reason. Two weeks from today is Father's Day, and I think it would be appropriate for us to look at the Fifth Commandment on that particular Lord's Day. So we're going to turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. If you'll turn there in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 18. <clears throat> we're going to read a slice out of the life of Abraham and looking only at the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 15. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. Let's hear now the word of God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and, be, and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This ends the reading 
of the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Sometimes Christians like to discuss theology, especially those questions that are hard to, to figure out the answers to. They like to discuss what God is like and they wonder about things like what God can do and what God might do and why God did what he did. And that's not a bad thing to do as long as that drives us to the word of God. But when we do that, sometimes people can imagine great theological questions that really don't have a whole lot of edifying value, whatever their answer might be that they come up with. For instance, can God create a rock so big that he cannot lift it? You know, we go on and on like that. And maybe little children sometimes are trying to work out their understanding of what God is like. And they can ask questions like that innocently enough. It's a way of learning about God. Or to put it in the words of verse 14, and this is the title for the sermon, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, don't be too quick to answer that question. Don't miss it, dismiss it too lightly. Of course, nothing is too hard for the Lord. That's a no-brainer. Well, let's th think through some of the challenges that we come through or go through in life that might seem as if, well, this, this situation is such that I don't know whether God can handle this or not. Our faith is vacillates, as we well know. Sometimes we, we are able to just put ourselves at God's disposal and entrust ourselves to him more acutely. And then there are other times where we really struggle with some level of doubt. Consider what we know of God's nature from scripture and how he has acted in hard circumstances in life. When we do that, we'll be better able to answer this question with confidence because the answer is really right here. And we need that confidence because of the seemingly impossible circumstances that we will encounter in our lives. Look at the way this is laid out in this part of Genesis 18 in Abraham's life. I want you to notice three things here. First of all, notice that in his grace, God continues to reveal himself to us. In his grace, God continues to reveal himself to us. We see that in verses 1 through 8. God makes another appearance to Abraham. He's done this before, of course. We can read in chapter 12, verse 7, and again in chapter 17, verse 1. The Lord appears to Abraham. Doesn't really say much about what manner in which the Lord appeared to Abraham, but he made his presence very obvious to Abraham. And later we read in chapter 19 about uh, the, the angels, later in chapter 18 actually, and then in chapter 19, two angels that come and appear before Lot and later uh, the Lord through his servant appears to Manoah in Judges 13. 
But here in Abraham's case, it was siesta time. It was midday, and in that part of the world, that meant it was hot. The sun was bearing down on everyone, and so quite wisely, they took a break from the morning jobs that they were involved in and rested, probably ate some. And here was Abraham sitting under one of those oak trees in Mamre. The sun being shielded uh, from him by this tree, the shade of the tree. That, isn't that a wonderful thing? When it's hot to get under the shade of a tree. Abraham was doing that, and I'm pretty sure while he was doing that, he was nodding off at times. And all of a sudden, he looks up and he sees these three men. Seemingly, they came out of nowhere. Abraham knew enough to realize this is not just some ordinary situation. There was something about these three men, one in particular, that caused Abraham to realize he needed to get up and get busy. And so he practices what Hebrews 13, 2 tells us to do. Hebrews 13, 2 tells us to show hospitality. Because in so doing, when you welcome others into your home, you may well be entertaining angels unaware. That passage has always just mystified me and, and excited me at the same time. Think about that. When you welcome someone into your home or into your life and offer to, to minister to them in some way, helping them along, you realize that sometimes you can be doing that to angels. I can't explain that. Don't ask me any more questions about that. That's as far as I can go with my understanding of that. But that's what Abraham was doing. He was showing hospitality. He didn't know these people. They were strangers. It's, that's emphasized. But he did what a good follower of the Lord would do. And so he treated them like royalty. And he rolled out the red carpet. And he sprang into action. And remember, Abraham's about 100 years old. And it says he got up quickly and ran. That shows you how serious he was. You may think, well, that shows you how healthy he was. That's not the way his condition is described. But this is enough to get him to, to moving quickly. And so he uh, goes to the tent of Sarah and says, quick, make some bread. And he goes to uh, the herd, takes this calf, this young tender calf, and gives it to someone to prepare it. And he takes curds, yogurt, and milk. And the calf that he had prepared, verse 8 says, and set it before them. So he sees these three men. And don't lose sight of the significance of this for Christians. Three men come, and as we'll see, one of them is the Lord. Two are only angels, but one is manifestation of the divine himself. 
And Abraham gradually comes to realize that. Our God, we need to think about that for us. Our God is a God who comes to us, who visits us, who desires fellowship and interaction with us. He's not a distant, far-off God. We say, oh, God's in heaven somewhere, wherever that is. Well, true enough. But he's also a God who is immense. That is, he is everywhere. And he is particularly present in more powerful ways when he comes into the lives of his people. We are the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, the, through the Holy Spirit being present in us. But the fact that God even does that, God takes the initiative to do that. He stoops to visit us. And if he did not do such, we would be without hope. The ultimate visit by God, of course, came in the form of a man who was Jesus Christ, God's only son, who came from heaven to earth to identify with us and to obtain salvation for our sins. So Abraham, if I can use this word uh, in a multiple sense, Abraham welcomed the opportunity to welcome these strangers. He knows it's the right thing to do. He shows honor to them. He bows down to them, calls them Lord, little L, a way of showing respect for someone that you esteem or consider to be in a greater position than you are. It was a Middle Eastern custom. But Abraham gradually becomes aware that these are no ordinary visitors. Imagine having the Lord for lunch. Wow. And what, what is happening here is God acting in grace towards Abraham. Grace provides fellowship between a holy God and sinful people. Not only when we come to know Christ, but as we grow in our relationship with the Lord and develop greater intimacy with God. I always think of the Apostle John he was sort of a, an early example of this. You know, in, in, when Christ was here on earth, <clears throat> John, one of the 12 disciples, he tells us this in his own gospel, but he doesn't use his name, I think, out of humility. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast, one of the three, the inner three disciples of the 12, along with Peter and James. John seemed to have this deeper grasp of what it meant to have fellowship with God, communion with God. And he tells us that in his gospel. He tells us that in, in uh, his epistles as well. But it's grace that does that. And so what Abraham's doing here is not just a, a social custom Bible commentators point out that this was nothing less than a covenant meal. They point out that this is the only place in the Bible 
before the coming of Christ where the Lord ate a meal with another being. Another covenant meal would take place later at Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given. And in Exodus 24, we read about the Passover uh, meal that uh, Moses and the other leaders had. And of course, that pointed ahead to Christ's last meal at Passover time before he was crucified, what we call the Lord's Supper. It was a covenant meal, a new covenant meal. A new covenant in his blood was set forth that we might be strengthened by his presence and by his love. So there's more going on here, see, than just, uh, you know, okay, well, I need to be nice and show, be a hospitable person and take care of these folks and send them on their way. Much more to it, of course, than that. And it's not too far afield, I don't think, to say that this projects further down the road to the marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to come when you and I who know Christ will one day, as Revelation 19 tells us, we will one day be invited to the wedding of the Lamb and the church will be his bride and we will eat together in that great feast in glory. So there's this, this biblical theme that goes all through scripture of, of uh, in a sense, celebrating and enjoying and advancing in our relationships to those that we love and those that love us using the meal as a, me a means to do that and to appreciate that. Abraham was called a friend of God, you know, James tells us that in James chapter 2 and other places as well. And so all this is, I'm, I'm trying to say the same thing over and over again in a sense. All this is showing us that God comes to meet with his people and to fellowship with them, to, to reveal more of himself to them in their hearts and in their minds so that they can grasp more fully the greatness of him and the greatness of his love for us and his desire to commune with us. You know, as we talk to him in prayer, as he talks to us through his written word and through his spirit, we are able, we are able to have this, this bond, this fellowship with the living God. It is through the blood of Christ that we are able to come with boldness before him, as Paul told the Ephesians. Now, if all of that is true, Whenever we come before God in worship, we need to remember, like we are right now, he's meeting with us. He discloses more of himself and his truth to us, and he works his grace in us by his spirit. We should be thankful to God that all of this is a part of what Jesus has provided for us. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is in his faithfulness, God makes amazing promises to us. In his faithfulness, God makes amazing promises to us. You see that in verses 9 through 12, where we had this interaction with Sarah and the, uh, one of the visitors in particular, the Lord. And a promise is given to her. Verse 10, 
The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. That's the same thing God had told, almost the same words God had told Abraham earlier in Genesis. A year from now, you're going to have a son. And what does Abraham do in chapter 17 when, uh, uh, before that, when God told Abraham that he was going to have a son? Well, Abraham laughed. He laughed, but not a laugh of disbelief. It was a laughter of amazement. But he did laugh. Abraham had already received this promise, and now Sarah, who apparently doesn't know this, had, Abraham hadn't told her, perhaps, about this promise, maybe thinking, uh, you know, that's going to be too hard for her. I mean, she's going to be devastated if she hears this promise and a year from now she's going to have a son, and she doesn't. She's 90 years old. And so maybe he didn't tell her at all, or if he did tell her, she just couldn't accept it. She could not believe it at that point. Whatever the case... Sarah's in the tent behind these visitors and she hears what's being said. And when she hears them say, you're going to, hears him say, you're going to have, Sarah's going to have a baby in a year, she laughed. She laughed silently. She laughed within herself. They couldn't hear her. But she laughed not like Abraham did. It wasn't out of a, a good faith. She, he was, she was laughing because this is crazy. This is impossible. God could not do this. And I, I'm too afraid. It says that she's afraid. I'm too afraid to be able to handle that kind of thing. So she learns of this astounding promise. How could this possibly happen? She describes herself uh, as she's thinking about this. Verse 12, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? It seems impossible. How do you respond to God's promises to you? You come across those pretty often if you Know your Bible. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. My God will supply all your needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Many, many promises, covenant promises. How do we respond to them? There are times when we may not respond in a stellar way. Do you view God's promises in the light of what you can figure out or in the light of God's nature and of how he has always fulfilled his promises in the past? When we read God's promises in the Bible, we must remember who is making them. If such promises were spoken by another human being, we would be skeptical and understandably so. In fact, we do hear all kinds of amazing promises from people every day. And I'm not just talking about the promises that politicians make. Sometimes friends make promises. Maybe they're well-meaning, but 
They can't always fulfill them. Sometimes people make promises that they really don't have the power to keep, but they make them as if they do. You know, sometimes we we get a little overzealous in helping somebody out. Everything's going to be all right. I just know it. Yeah, hopefully it will be all right, but we don't know exactly in what way. We just know that God will be good. So here's this dilemma. How do we respond to the promises as we think of them and come across them in God's word? God is the God of truth. The God of truth. He does, it is impossible for him to lie. That would go against his nature. And he knows what we need and he is able to meet those needs. Remember that Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1 that Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. In him, he is our yes to the promises of God. And so we need to think about the faithfulness of God even as Moses, uh, as Abraham was coming to see this more and more in this situation. And then thirdly, notice that in his power, God will accomplish all that he has planned for us. In his power, God will accomplish all that he has planned for us. And you see that in the last three verses that we read today, verses 13 through 15. And he does this in spite of our doubts. He's going to fulfill his promises, even when we aren't quite there in trusting him like we ought to be. God knows our thoughts. He knows the degree of our faith. No obstacle for him to know what's going on. We can understand why Sarah laughed. Her faith was not yet at the point where she could take this staggering promise in. Her faith will grow. She will see God's promise fulfilled. And the interesting thing is that when Isaac does come a year later, when he is born, Sarah laughs again. In chapter 21, verse 5, we read, uh, 21, verse 6, we read about that. Isaac's born, Sarah laughs again, but it's a different kind of laugh this time. And guess what Isaac's name means? Laughter. Laughter. Hebrews 11 commends Sarah's faith. So we don't need to wonder, uh, Sarah, I don't know if she was a true believer or not. Well, listen to what Hebrews 11 says in verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. There's a wonderful connection here that makes its way all the way down to where you and I are right now the covenant connection where God comes to those that he sees fit to 
bring salvation to. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to enter into your life. I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to save you through the Redeemer. The Redeemer that was promised in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and the Redeemer who came and did what was necessary, dying for our sins, paying the penalty our sins deserved through his blood and rising from dead, the dead to conquer death itself for us. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the one who kept the covenant perfectly. And so Hebrews commends Sarah's faith, but her staggering at the thought of having a child when she was 90 years old doesn't keep God from doing what he says he will do. God doesn't look at his people that he loves and, and, and says, well, I've given you a chance to, to really trust me, but you've blown it, so the deal's off. That's not the way God works. Aren't we thankful for that? That's not the way God works. He knows our weakness. He knows where there's genuine faith in him, even though that faith may be weak. It was with Abraham, was with Sarah, and they both grew in faith over time. See, God's grace is evident here as well, since God could have withdrawn his promise, as I said, but God didn't because this was his commitment to them. How heartening this should be for us since we distrust God's promises so often and yet he is so patient and gracious with us. It's because of his greatness. The question, is anything too hard for the Lord, is what we call a rhetorical question. It's a question with an obvious answer. Of course, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And you need to appreciate that this phrase, too hard, it's really a word that means too wonderful or too incredible. Is anything too great, too incredible for God to do? It's the same question asked in Jeremiah 32, twice. It's a question that Jesus put in a positive form in Matthew 19, 26. With God, all things are possible. What did the angel Gabriel tell Mary as he announced another miraculous birth? One to her that, of course, she would bear Jesus as her son. But the angel says in Luke 137, for nothing is impossible with God. <coughs> what does the Bible tell us about the greatness of God? His greatness, the psalmist says, no one can fathom. He is infinitely great. Because of that, there's nothing that's too hard for the Lord. Consider his mighty works, his work of creation, saying the word and everything springs into existence out of nothing. That's great. A great God can do that. His work of providence, weaving together all the different things that go on, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in our lives. 
in the lives of people we know. Opening doors, closing doors, bringing people together. His providence, where he governs, as the catechism says, he governs all our creatures and all their actions. That's a great God that can do that. And the greatest, of course, is our redemption. Do you understand that there's no other way? Man could never have conceived of our getting out of the mess we were in with our sin other than a perfect man paying the penalty for our sin. Well, how's that going to happen? Since there are no perfect people in this world. It seemed impossible. God made it happen by sending his only begotten son. There's no power or person greater than God. The only things that God cannot do if we were to be technical would be to deny himself, which of course he cannot and will not do. God cannot lie, as we've mentioned, because he is the God of truth. It's impossible for him to lie. So he can't go against his own nature. But God can do all his holy will. God's promise of a son by Abraham and Sarah had to be processed by them. They had to, to gradually come to understand this more and more. Romans 4 tells us how that happened. We won't take the time to read it now, but uh, verses 18 through 21 talks about how Abraham thought through this and his faith grew as a result. Now, before we stop, let me, let me ask you to think about your life in the light of this searching question. Is anything too hard for the Lord in your life? Here's some examples for you to think about. Is it too hard for God to save the likes of you from your sins? Sometimes we are at points where we wonder that before we come to know Christ. Maybe someone here today is at that point. Is it too hard for God to forgive you of your sins? Have we gone too far? As Kent Hughes put it, God comes to seat us at his table. Think about the meal connection here. God comes to seat us at his table. Moses, uh, Abraham did that in a sense here. Sit at the table and eat this feast. You know, he said he was going to prepare what we would say a bite to eat. It was a feast. Think of the feast that God has for our souls, the feast that we're going to enjoy in its fullness in heaven. You have a seat at the table and God has put you in that seat for fellowship with him. Or we might say, is it too hard for God to preserve you all the way to heaven in spite of your failures and doubts? Is it too hard for God? Is it too hard for God to use you to glorify him through your service to others? Would he actually use you or me? Is it too hard for God to deliver you from those temptations that assault you and threaten to ruin 
your spiritual life and witness. Is it too hard for God to supply your needs when you are struggling hard to make enough to take care of your family? Is it too hard for God to protect your loved ones when you cannot? And lastly, is it too hard for God to help you when you die? By taking you to, him, to himself in heaven and then raising your body to be glorified and healed fully at the last day. Consider this question, dear friend, because there are times when we're going to have to think about that. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do provide us with encouragement. We can't come to you today, Lord, and say that our faith is 100% operational at all times. Lord, it ebbs and flows. Our emotions sometimes take over what we know in your word, know that what your word says is, is there for our, us to claim those promises. We ask you, Lord, to help us to, as we need it, to turn back to you, to rejoice that you are present with us, that you are helping us when we call upon you. You will strengthen our faith. Help us to remember in our situations that nothing is too hard for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.